Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, February 16th. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producer, is Christian Ryan and Ben. Blue Jays pitchers and catchers have reported spring training has opened. We're getting lots of tasty visuals from uh, the reporters down on site in Dunedin of bullpens being thrown and uh, introductory scrums being had uh you and i will be down there uh later this month and into march so very much looking forward to that for now we are uh, in toronto kind of covering it from afar but i guess sort of one of the big storylines to emerge so far one of the the big events to happen was Bo Bichette finally speaking about uh the extension that that he signed with the blue jays the three-year extension that we covered extensively uh last week on the podcast and i just remember you saying throughout the rumors around it and everything that happened with regards to Bo over the offseason don't try to ascribe anything to him without hearing him speak let him talk for himself we still need to hear him give his thoughts on this and we did get that opportunity to hear his thoughts this week so just to tie a bow on the bow situation what did you think of what boba had to say about his extension yeah it was good to hear from him because we'd all been kind of speculating about what this might mean for a couple months um and it wasn't very surprising i mean i think boba shed in the way that he addresses the media a lot of the time is really polished i think he goes in there knowing what he wants to say and i think he's very consistent in executing those goals so you know he's not someone who's necessarily prone to like slips of the tongue this is someone even after you know walk-off hits we see him some you see him sometimes you know very immediately after (laughs) I, i might see him you know five seven minutes after a walk-off hit he's pretty composed. He's still pretty grounded in those moments. And so no surprise that he would have that um, same sort of demeanor when he was addressing the media. And, you know, what I took away from it was he still thinks it's a flawed process. No shock there. It is a flawed process. There are many, many um, shortcomings with arbitration, as we did discuss last week. But it's one that um, did lead to a deal that I think works for both sides. And Bichette seemed to be uh, content, um, if not you know, thrilled, but certainly seemed to be content with the direction that things had moved. Anytime you can take unknowns out of your life, you know, it can lead to focus in other areas. So I've always, I've never been driven by money, so it's not necessarily something that, you know, gives me anything more than I thought it would. But just to have, like you said, the security and be on the same page with the team and all that just makes it a little bit easier to go out and perform. Yeah, it just affirmed like what we already new and that's that Bo has a really clear-eyed understanding of the process and of the economics of baseball and the business of baseball and what his value is within that he's a smart dude for his age and he has a really like really just good comprehension of the game um it was interesting to hear a little bit about how the deal came together about how the blue jays presented it to him just days before it was finalized i think that demonstrates how quickly things can change how quickly these deals can come together and that's because over years really the two sides have been talking and have been in contact and like have been sharing views maybe not necessarily exchanging hard offers but really just framing a thorough understanding of where each side's value is at and where everybody's priorities are at so sometimes you'll you'll hear Ross Atkins kind of come out and say things like oh well you know this trade deadline or you know leading up to the trade deadline or early in the offseason we've we've gained a lot of information and we've like gotten a really firm understanding and we've really framed values people kind of like roll their eyes and say what does that even mean go out and make a deal you nerd but like that's what he's talking about is that we've laid a lot of groundwork so that we can actually execute on something really quickly uh that's gonna make sense for both sides so that can lead to really efficient deal making and that's why i think this bow deal came together as quickly as it did because a lot of that homework was done and a lot of that groundwork was laid uh and the last thing i'll say on it honestly and this came from Bo, you heard him say it he just wanted to feel valued by his organization like he just wanted to feel 
important. He wanted to feel valued. And I think that you even heard that echoed a little bit in the comments Ross Atkins made after the signing and saying repeatedly, we believe Bobachet's one of the best players in the game. We believe he's an MVP caliber player. So that belief is there and it's been stated publicly and it's obviously been demonstrated in the extension that was uh you know that the bow has signed uh so i just think that feeling valued feeling like that value is there was was a big factor in this as well yeah now i wonder if the jays consider any more of these i mean to me this is a great start for for the jays and i wonder if you know do you talk to kirk do you talk to alec manoa some of these guys who are pre-arbitration um, you know, of course, the structures would look different, and each player has a different appetite for doing this kind of deal. You'll hear GMs and executives talk about shared risk, um, and that looks different at each stage of a player's career. But I do wonder, and this is speculation, but I wonder if there's room to do more of that because the Jays do have a good young core, and you know, if you can keep these guys through a greater stretch of their 20s, that's probably a good thing for a team that's trying to sustain its window. The guy I look to, honestly, is Matt Chapman just because like the clock is ticking there and I think it's actually ticking in a much more meaningful way than people maybe even understand like he's obviously entering his walk year prior to free agency and as you look forecast towards next winter's free agent class as dangerous as it is to do that Matt Chapman's one of the top names available in that class as things stand right now and we've got six months of regular season baseball to be played and injuries and uh, unexpected performance in both directions so like who knows what's going to happen but like he's very well positioned right now uh the blue jays i mean i'm sure would be open to retaining matt chapman if, if there was a willingness on the other side but matt chapman's a scott boris client and scott boris clients typically go to free agency so that's like one variable at play here Another variable is, and I mentioned it earlier with like the clock ticking, I think the time to do a Matt Chapman extension, if you're going to do a Matt Chapman extension, is in the next six weeks. I don't think that in season it would happen because think about it. If you get halfway through the regular season and Matt Chapman is having like a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, he's on, he's on pace for like a four win, five win season. He's like, 120 WRC plus type of guy defense is sound as always what motivation does he have to sign an extension at that point unless you're blowing him away like he's gonna say yeah I'm just gonna play out the second half of the season and go to free agency and leverage the open market now on the flip side you get halfway through the season and Matt Chapman suffered some serious injury or he's underperforming massively like if he's just league average or the you know WRC plus is like 90 well now if you're the Blue Jays you're wondering do we want to extend this guy? What's going on beneath the hood here? So I just think that if an extension is going to happen, like this spring is the window, this spring is the time. And if it doesn't happen this spring, I think Matt Chapman extremely likely goes to free agency. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. They got one done last spring, so you can never say never. If I'm a Jays fan, I'm not holding my breath on this one. That's for sure. I think Matt Chapman's going to have his day uh, in free agency at this point. But um, he's a great player. So if there is a way to get it done, that would probably make some sense to explore it. But I, I think that price would be very, very high, well into the you know nine-figure deal territory. Well, yeah, you look at the comps and it's like Chris Bryant, Marcus Simeon. And yeah. those guys were probably even a little bit older than chapman was um like me and like dj the may comes to mind but he was really old when he was in free agency and his like deal was kind of weird and like uh cbt circumventing but you are looking at that like bryant simeon tier of like 170 180 million dollars over like six seven eight years and defense can get you paid you know in a way that maybe 15 years ago now strong defensive player would have been uh, an undervalued player in free agency but you know you look at even Jason Hayward and that deal's old now but even Jason Hayward got a massive deal in large part because of his gloves so you know Chapman's defense will be appropriately valued by the market 
just while we're looking at things the Blue Jays could do over the next few weeks in terms of transactions, one thing that kind of stuck out to me when I was thinking about who's in camp and how the Blue Jays' depth is kind of lining up, yes, there is obviously a spot for like another bench piece here, um, you know, a, a, a bench piece that can hit left-handed pitching likely, you know, a right-handed hitting outfielder or switch hitting outfielder. Like obviously Robbie Grossman makes a lot of sense. Would there be enough opportunity for him there? Like we all know that, but I'm like, I'm still looking at starting pitching a little bit as an area where the Blue Jays could just use a little more depth. Like they are awfully close to like the Drew Hutchison is taking regular turns in this rotation position. If there was some sort of an an injury or two in camp, like we've already heard about Mitch White having a shoulder impingement and being a little bit behind schedule. Like these things happen in spring training. If I'm the Blue Jays, I'm trying to build in a little bit more insurance uh, when it comes to starting pitching. I'm looking at guys who are still out there like your Mike Miners and Dylan Bundy's of this world, Chris Archer, and I am trying to like take a flyer on a minor league deal for one of those guys. And I am looking to bring them into camp with a deal that has an opt-out or two in there for them in case an opportunity opens up somewhere else and like a decent guarantee for them if they crack the big league roster right it's like two three million bucks something like that like something substantial so it's just you're gonna have to make it worth their while right like there's a reason why they're still free agents they're waiting for something better but you give them those incentives bring them in on a minor league deal let them pitch in camp they're auditioning for the rest of the league showcasing for the rest of the league as well and what's your worst case scenario there is that everybody who's ahead of them stays healthy and they end up opting out and going somewhere else okay that's not so bad but if Alec Manoa like gets hurt or Kevin Gossman can't figure out his, you know, the delivery changes that he's trying to make without being able to toe tap as much. Now you just have that extra layer of insurance. Um, so I, I kind of think it could be a win-win for both sides. And I think it's something that the Blue Jays should be addressing soon. Yeah. It's always, always helpful to have more pitching depth and, you know, you, you hear about the Mitch White shoulder thing. And of course, there's a lot of time before opening day now. So that's more a situation to monitor than it is, you know, to necessarily totally disrupt things. But it is interesting and it's not trending in the way you'd want it to. So if you're the Jays, yeah, you got the Zach Thompson, Drew Hutchison layer. Like it's funny, even this week, you know, of course, the spring training's back, right? So you're kind of for me, I'm consuming a lot of this stuff on social media and you see the arrival videos that the Jays are tweeting out and uh, Hazel May, our colleague, of course, tweeting out some of these arrival videos. And it's great. You know, you see like Vlad Jr. arriving and Bichette and George Springer and then Drew Hutchison's in there too. And it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's on this team. You almost kind of, you almost sort of um, not forget about it, but um, you know, and w- when we get down there, in person, you know, it's always such a reminder of just how many people are in camp. You have dozens and dozens and dozens um, because, you know, there's so many layers to the organization. But when it comes to pitching, it's interesting. And, you know, I think about that fifth starter battle right now. And Yusei Kikuchi in particular, like we're hearing and seeing Yusei Kikuchi with the beard, hearing a little bit of hype around Yusei Kikuchi, the slow build. Like I think, and of course, right, like, Okay, he had the offseason to get into better shape and, and to, to work on some things. So that's great. Uh, you know, he, by all accounts, a very hardworking individual. So that's a good thing. I think we're going to hear more hype around Yusei Kikuchi this spring. Because if you're the Jays, of course you're going to pump him up, right? You want him to see that. You want him to feel good. You want him to feel like, you know, he's just like doing amazing. Because confidence, a little bit of support and confidence never hurts anyone. And uh, especially coming off a down year. So I'm predicting right now, just get ready for all kinds of Yusei Kikuchi hype. He's got a new pitch. He's reworked <laughs> yeah. his arm path. He's finally put away the cutter. Oh, you should see this thing he's doing with his hips. We moved him on the rubber. It's all fixed, baby. It's all fixed. Yeah, no, yeah. that's going to be a thing because as we saw last year, like confidence is a factor here. Like, I, I think it's pretty clear to say that, that like it, this is somebody who you want taking the mound feeling really good about himself and feeling confident and stuff as he should be because he has electric stuff. Uh, I think that just the mindset and mentality on the mound at, at times has sabotaged him um, and that, you know, if, if he just trusted his fastball uh, a bit more and, you know, really trusted throwing his stuff on the plate a bit more, I think he'd probably have a lot better outcomes. And he got him to chase. Jansen down to first to complete the out. Strikeout number three for Kikuchi. 
that is one annual rite of spring is like, yeah, be a little cautious with some of the players that really get built up. Another thing to be cautious with, and I feel like we do this every year, is the uh, best shape of his life. So-and-so looks jacked. This guy's got all kinds of muscle on him. Look at how big he is. He's wearing cut-off shirts and it's a gun show all the time. Like, yes, of course, every player is jacked right now. Like, every player has spent the entire offseason working out. Every player is bigger and more muscular and in better shape in February 2023 than they were in September 2022 because players lose weight and muscle mass over the course of a season it is near impossible to gain muscle during the grind of a baseball season you're only going to lose you're dealing with constant travel constant stress you're not sleeping well you're spending three plus hours a night on your feet you know you're stressing your cardiovascular system you're stressing your central nervous system um like you are not feeling fresh enough to before a game like put 225 on the bar and squat it for five sets of 12 reps like that's just not something you're gonna be doing during the winter you can do that and you can eat better and sleep better and be in one location and like really focus on lifting for strength and hypertrophy and doing what you got to do in order to bulk up for the season so that's why like every player is looking better in camp right now because of course they are they should yeah exactly and and it's you know not to take away from like for example the danny jansen shows up he's in good shape like good for him he's doing what he should this is an incredibly difficult profession and you know it requires a lot of these athletes and danny jansen is doing his job he's showing up he's in shape now does that mean that he's destined to have a you know 140 wrc plus next year and hit 25 bombs and play 100 games no he might do it i mean i honestly i wouldn't be that surprised he's showing a lot in the last few years but there's certainly no guarantee of that. And, I'm, you know, players at this point, as we record here on Thursday, like it's still just the middle of February, right? Like there are more guys who are going to show up and we'll probably get more of those best shape of their life stories. I might, you know, there might be a point that I write one, you know, like it might be, might be March the 4th and, and, and you know, Shy's already written a bunch of stories. You've, you know, covered them off and it's like, all right, I need something. Like, so that's that's part of how those stories get out there as well as, you know, it can be a bit of a layup sometimes if you're a writer. I wrote one last year about Santiago Espinal, but the reason why I wrote that is because you had very real exit velocity data that said this guy's hitting the ball harder. Like this guy's max exit velo is up, his average exit velo is like we are seeing him put the ball in play at like a higher rate of speed than we have seen before so like Rhett, look at stuff like that like don't just look at pictures yeah. of guys like in sleeveless shirts like look at stuff like like measurables you know max exit velos if you if there's some sort of sprint speed right look at how often um like we were talking about kikuchi right how often is he in the zone in spring games right yeah. like you know what like how often is he on the plate same thing will go for nate pearson look at look at his velocity right pitcher velocity in general those like those measurables that's the stuff that you can point to and be like okay this is an indicator that this guy is actually primed to have um a different season than he had before lo and behold santiago espinal did have a different first half of 2022 than he did before his second half yeah it fell off a little bit but in the first half he was an all-star and he carried over that exit velocity into the regular season so I would say point to those measurables once we start getting that stat cast data from uh, games at TD Ballpark, and, and we can talk about that. Espinal, deep left field and gone. It, exactly, because, you know, you think about the conversations that you have with coaches, for example, in spring, front office officials. You'll never, well, I, it's pretty rare to hear someone say, Oh yeah, you know, his his ERA is like one and a quarter. Like he's just been he's been amazing. Yeah. But you might you might hear someone say his slider's been nasty, he's been in the zone, he's been attacking, he's a different guy out there, the velo's there. Like that's the sort of thing you hear. Same with hitters. He's hitting lasers everywhere, he's just squaring up the ball all the time, his takes look comfortable. That's the sort of thing that you hear about a hitter who's who's doing well. And actually, you know, that's it's anecdotal. There's we can we can all have our eyes deceive us. That happens, but at the same time, those are more indicative than, oh my goodness, this guy's hitting all these Texas leaguers into the outfield and he happens to be hitting 380. You know, that's probably more like, you know, with all due respect to Ghost K. Coteau, 
great story, but you know, that's kind of what he did last spring. And you know, it wasn't exactly a long-term solution for the Jays. Yeah. So let's look at the objective stuff, the empirical stuff. Uh, and it's funny that I say that because, uh, the final thing I want to touch on when it comes to kind of early spring storylines is like much more soft sciency. Uh, and that's some of the tone setting we've heard from John Schneider just in his first sort of scrums with, with media down there about what he's looking for from his club, uh, out of the spring. And, and there's been a lot of talk about being more precise with the ball being more purposeful with work, like trying to, you know, major in the minors almost, right? Like, like trying to really like take care of attention to detail and small things, base running, defense, focus, attention, like a, a real sort of consistency when it comes to attentiveness in the work that is being done now and carrying that over into the regular season like what do you make of some of that stuff that, that we're hearing from john schneider in his first camp as as manager of the club you know i'd love to know how much of a difference that can make because it definitely can make a difference and i definitely think that this is the time to focus on that stuff it makes sense he's setting a tone it's his first spring as the manager of this team it's a really hard thing to pinpoint and i don't think that john schneider would have an answer because i don't think anyone does but I wonder, I don't know, like even like what you think here on this one, but like, because attention does matter. Like if you're paying attention at anything, you're going to be a little bit better at it. If you could focus your attention podcasting, if I'm more focused on the podcast one day, it'll probably be a better result than if I'm a bit scattered. So it's definitely true for defense. It's definitely true for pitch selection, um, for prep. Uh, And I just wonder like how much of a difference that can make. Like, is it my tentative guess is like four or five wins but I I could be totally off there well and I think that's what this is about is because the Blue Jays on pure talent I think if they just kind of show up and try to out talent teams they'll probably win 90 91 games like I I think that we've actually kind of seen that the last couple of years that like foundationally all the big stuff is in place. You got a roster with guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and George Springer, Kevin Gosman, Alec Manoa, Matt Chapman. I mean, these are all four to five win players. Like these are really talented dudes. So it's like, how do we go from that 90, 91, 92 win team that we've been the last couple of years to a 94, 95, 96 win team? Where do we find those four or five wins you're talking about? So that like, hey, maybe we can actually win a division here and not even have to like worry about hosting a team for a three game series and having our, you know, center fielder and shortstop collide and the wheels fall off, right? Maybe we don't don't even need to be in the position where we run into Luis Castillo on the best night of his career and and now all of a sudden we're behind the eight ball. So I think that's what that's about because I think the Blue Jays probably think that, well, now that all that big stuff's in place, we need to find the little wins on the margins. And we need to really sort of optimize and look at that little stuff that you mentioned. Um, look, Making sure that like every time a ball is hit to the outfield, the cutoff men are in position on those relays. And the outfielders are hitting those cutoff men like consistently and making the right decisions. We are, you know, you need to make sure we are recognizing and capitalizing on every opportunity to go first to third. Every opportunity to go second to home, like you said, strike zone management, swing decisions, uh, like base runner awareness on balls in the dirt at the plate, when to take off and not like those little things. If you find those little one percents every day and those little wins and you let them accumulate over the course of a season. Yes, maybe that does actually turn into three, four or five wins. And at that point, it could be really meaningful in terms of what you're doing in October. And, and I do think that there's a way where if there's some momentum on this, maybe that starts in spring, where in the best case scenario, then it's possible that these things become self-reinforcing because you make a play where you're going first to third, the bench erupts, the coaches are into it, everyone's locked in. That keeps you focused through that series in Oakland where there's 6,000 people in the stands because you have a purpose there. Now, Every team in baseball wants to do that, including the A's, including the you know Pirates. It's it's a lot easier said than done. It's a lot easier said on February 16th than it is executed on August 16th. But I think as a concept, it makes a ton of sense to try to strive for that because you know it, it is something that the Jays can can shape at this point in the season. Um, so it's it'll be interesting to see where it leads. 
Yeah, and I think that in a camp like this where there aren't really any competitions, like there aren't any really any battles, like your roster's pretty much set. You got one bench spot there for a Nathan Lucas or an Otto Lopez or an Addison Barger or someone like that. You're trying to sort out your fifth starter, but I, I mean, right now it's looking like that's going to be, you say, Kikuchi, pretty likely Mitch White starts in the bullpen. We'll see. Uh, outside of that, like your roster is set. So I think there would it would probably be easy for a lot of players to fall into a bit of a like go through the motions, like just get through these six weeks sort of rhythm, like just show up every day, mentally shut off, somewhat disengaged from what you're doing. And I bet you that John Schneider wants his players to be a lot more engaged than that and to be showing up with a lot more purpose every day in the work that they're doing and understanding like why they are training certain things and making sure that they are making the most of their time and ensuring that they are getting something out of the training that they're performing every day, doing things with intent, looking to get better at what they're doing, understanding the purpose of these medicine ball throws or this T work or these one handed dry swings, like just making sure that everyone is like working smart, working efficiently, with a purpose, I, I would imagine that has something to do with it as well in a camp where there really aren't that many competitions. Exactly, because it is, it's a long spring, right? And this spring, even with that purpose, even with the WBC interrupting it, like there will be points where in spring, attention will lapse and energy levels will diminish. And that's inevitable. And in spring, that's actually okay. And probably as a coaching staff, you know, I'll ask the Jays about it when I'm when I'm down there because um, uh, part of my spring coverage uh, will be during some of those those middle weeks, right, where it's kind of hard to have the energy levels be at peak periods. But I, I think that the important thing is being ready to go when it counts, and uh, no one is going to show up with max max effort for every single spring game. That is a waste of energy. It's a waste of effort. So it's a matter of harnessing that selectively and making sure that you're ready to go when it counts. You mentioned the WBC. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about news breaking uh, and we're going to talk about rule changes as we uh, clean out the old ATL email inbox uh, on the other side of this. All that so much more when it continues on at the letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It continues on At The Letters. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producer, is Christian Ryan. As always, you can uh, reach out to us, send us an email. It's at the letters at sportsnet.com. .ca. Been getting lots of great emails so far this year. Been uh, working hard to respond to all of them and uh, want to actually get to a few of them. And the first one comes from Eric Hartman. And uh, here's what Eric had to say. Hey, ATL folks, with Ben being first on the news of Bo Bichette's ARB avoiding multi-year deal, I was curious and think many other listeners would be as well how the news breaking process works. Obviously not asking for direct sources and examples, but does it tend to be agents, team sources, accidental butt dials? It depends. <laughs> Question mark. Excited for year nine. Your pal, Eric. Ben, the floor is yours. Wow. Well, thanks, Eric. Um, there's so many directions to go with this one. And it's something I think a lot about. There's an aspect of all those things, uh, minus the butt dials, which I try to avoid, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say all yeah. of them <laughs> and, and you know i'm trying to I, i'm aware too that you know people uh listen to this podcast who uh i might sometimes ask for information so you know i, I don't want to tell too many tales uh, out of school here uh, I'll, I'll do my best to reveal some some of the basics and go from there i think the way i would start to answer this is all right so if you're trying to break news there's a piece of information that you want so you're trying to get that piece of information so that's a very basic level. Then to even begin asking that question, you have to know that an answer to your question might exist. So to make that a bit more clear and a bit less abstract, let's say this is late December. The Jays are trading uh, Guriel and they're trading Moreno to the Diamondbacks and they're getting Dalton Varsho back. If you're going to break that, which I didn't, by the way, <laughs> I was in a car at the time, but if I had been trying to break it, then I would have had to have some idea that that might happen. 
right? It's not going to come out of nowhere. I would have to have some idea that that was a possibility. Now, in that case, ACL listeners know, Arden, you and I had speculated about that very possibility probably a few days before. So it wouldn't have been a shock, you know, somewhat on our radar. So if I thought that things were picking up, then it becomes a question of, all right, I know what piece of information I want to know. Then it's who would know this information. And the sooner it is in time to the event happening, the fewer people know. And the longer time ticks, the more people know. I I think that it's pretty safe to say that in the initial moments that that trade was agreed upon, Ross Atkins knew, Mike Hazen, the GM of the Diamondbacks knew. Okay, that's two people. Then as time goes on, the players themselves know. They're telling family members. They're telling their agents. Maybe their agents are telling them. Maybe you have PR officials from the teams who know things. Maybe you have graphics makers who know things. It could be all kinds of people who know things at a certain point. So, you know, as again, as time ticks, there are more people that you could potentially reach out to. That's like an initial answer. It's like first identifying the question of what it is that you're trying to break. Then it's like who might know. And I'll, I'll just add one more thing, Arden, before before letting you dive in here, because I want to hear your thoughts on this as well. But like, it's kind of like anything, like if you want to know something from a friend, for example, and you haven't talked to that friend in like eight months, and, you know, there's another friend that you talked to like a couple times in the course of the last two weeks, and you think that that friend might have the same information your chances are probably better with the person where there's an active conversation. You don't want to be the person who's reaching out once every eight months of like, hey, what are you guys, who are you, who are you getting at the deadline? You know, I have, <laughs> you know, this part I don't mind saying, I have the numbers of a lot of GMs in baseball. I feel really weird, like cold texting a GM being like, hey man, are you trading this player? It just feels like a big leap. So I honestly don't do that. I try to do it other ways. I'm I, Now I should stop talking. I feel like I'm starting to no. say too much. You just cracked me up because I am, I am often that person reaching out for the first time in eight months. <laughs> just <laughs> like, hey, uh, your player's in the news. What's going on? Like, I, because yeah. I, 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 and this is why I'm like, I don't do much transactional stuff because like I just, that hamster wheel that, uh, people such as yourself and shy and then obviously like south of the border the big dudes you know pass and rosenthal that, that that you guys all run on doesn't look like a life i'm particularly interested <laughs> in like being on that treadmill at all times man who boy it's hard to have much of a life and uh i value my life quite a bit and i uh i would rather like bring value to consumers to listeners to readers to whatever in uh having the best analysis and being able to break things down um and and explain things and uh just yeah just you know analyzing things at a high level that's that's where i think that i bring value not so much in like giving you the details on the club option you know on on, like chad green's cascading like options or whatever (laughs) right but there's there's certainly value in people who do that but that's why like i don't have as many of those like very active conversations with people because i also don't want to be like basically being a phony with someone and being like i, I understand i'm not like we're not friends me and gmx or agent y yeah you know like we're like, yeah, yeah colleagues acquaintances we know each other but like, we're not friends i'm not like hey how's the family hey how's so-and-so soccer practice or whatever <laughs> and i don't want to come across as that guy who is just asking those questions and just maintaining that text thread so that i can get something transactional out of it oh yeah at some point you know, so that that just feels to me like really like foul, <laughs> not something oh, that I yeah. want to do. So I that's agree. why I am often in the position that you I was just in that position earlier this week where it's like I haven't messaged this guy in probably about a year, but I'm going to anyway. And you know what? Didn't get a response on it. And I don't <laughs> blame that person at all because I don't reach out ever and I don't keep that up because yeah. to me, I that hamster wheel and that phoniness is just not something I want to do. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's like I really try to not do that. Like I try to not send disingenuous like, how are you little check in? You know, if I have a real question, I'll ask someone a real question. A lot of it, too, is in person. And, you know, having the chance to see people in person, it can really bridge some of that gap because, you know, and this is one of the things where the pandemic, when a lot of the restrictions were in place, people still broke news. So you can do it without 
in-person access. Like there was still Jay's news that broke in 2020 and 2021 when basically no reporters were around the team. But it's, you know, with is with anything like it's you're just going to have a more authentic uh, interaction with people if you're able to see them in person and able to kind of establish the fact that you're a human being and you know, there's a there's a through line with all this. You don't become a major league GM if you don't love baseball. You don't become a major league baseball agent if you don't love baseball. So these people care about the sport a lot. They have opinions. They have hot takes that you know sometimes they'll share, and um, that's always that's always fun. That's always interesting. It's, it's like anything. Like you know, I suspect that in any uh, you know in any professional environment. If you're, uh, you know, a, a teacher, there are going to be probably some teachers that you're closer to and you have more of a fluid relationship where you're sharing information more freely. I, I assume that's the case for all kinds of fields. And it's definitely the case within the, the baseball industry. But like for me, like it's obviously in that case, it's not like I'm picking up my phone and FaceTiming Boba Shat. You know, like that, I will say that <laughs> that's, that's not what it was, it, but, um, it's like in person is always like preferable, but the reality is if you're going to be like a trade breaker transactionally yeah. on the, you know, on an MLB level, like you can't be in 30 markets at once. So the no. people who are really, really good at that, really, really elite at breaking transactions are texting all day long. Like they are yep. on their phones all the time sending out feelers like phone calls um like they spend just a lot of time conversing via phone and via text message and maintaining those relationships and like that's something that they have energy for that i don't believe i would have honestly um and it like it gets back to what i was saying like earlier like i don't want to I try to be very authentic and genuine in my interactions with people. Like I don't want to feel disingenuous. Um, I try to be very like forthright and plain and honest and direct. Even when it comes to the in-person interactions at the ballpark, I go up to a player, I go up to somebody with the team. Like I, I'm like, Hey, here's a direct question that I have for you. I'm not just like here to hang out and to, you know, be chummy and to try to like, just, shoot the breeze or whatever like that stuff does happen naturally but like i approach somebody i don't want to waste their time like i want to come up and be like hey like this thing happened in the game last night why did this happen this yeah. transaction occurred you guys did this why did you do that or like yeah. as a player like you had this option in free agency or you had this choice to make in your career why did you make that choice and then i will take that information on something that has happened previously and use that to inform my opinion going forward and i think that's yeah. why a lot of people who listen to this podcast uh long-time listeners will kind of see things happen uh with the blue jays and in baseball more globally and be like oh Arden and ben were talking about that two weeks ago or last week it's because yeah. like you use that information to inform your opinion going forward so that you can just speak as intelligently as possible about the game that's how i kind of approach it yeah exactly and that's where like for me you know that's like the background that kind of seeps out right it's like background information yeah. that then we you know filter out um gradually and that is more valuable to me than like the details on chad green's option Really, I, I think that and that and it reinforces like what you're saying when it comes to, you know, the analysis versus the news breaking. I think those are two different skill sets. Some people have both skill sets. Like, you know, you talk about someone like a Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Pass, and they're great. You know, Joel Sherman. A lot of people are really good at at both of those things on a on a national level. In other cases, maybe there's more of a specialty. Maybe it's more breaking news. Maybe it's more analysis. And that's, you know, all of that's fine. But you know, it's it's so interesting with players too because I I take a similar approach to you with with players. I think it's safe to say I'm not in there trying to be chummy. I'm not in there trying to, you know, be someone's best friend. That's a fact. Uh, it, I do find it's a little different with agents for some reason, and partly it's because you know at the GM meetings, at the winter meetings, they have a lot of time on their hands between meetings. They're there. They like a lot of them. Really like to chat. Some of them, of course, don't even go. Like some of them. You know, I'll, I'll check in, see if they're going and they don't, they're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. It's not a good use of my time, but others just love it. And they're in the lobby and like, you know, there's this year, me and Shy were there in Vegas at the GM meetings and, you know, talking to one agent and he's like, I'm bored. Keep talking to me. Keep talking, like <laughs> hang around here. I was like, okay. You know, and you kind of get little, little bits of information that way. 
Yeah, I don't know, Eric, if that's uh, if, if I'm answering that question. Obviously, there's a limit to how much you can get into detail, but basically, it's just showing curiosity and trying to gather information about about the game and, and knowing who to reach out to when. Well, and it does become a bit of a game too, right? And that's the other thing that I think that you know transactional reporters always have to have in mind is like, okay, wait, why is this person giving me this information, right? Because like the individual, the person who gives you the information, Ben knows that you're going to share it, so and you're going to tell people about it, and that information is going to get out and likely end up getting aggregated on MLB trade rumors. So people will, you know, stakeholders in the game will be purposeful with what they are telling you so then you have to take it to that next level of okay why do they want this information out there does that then change my analysis of the accuracy of the information and do i then have to be like a little bit more cautious with how i share this or do i have to go and then call somebody else just to make sure that this is um that this is legit i'm not being used here like i'm not becoming a pawn in this game like it does be it's another reason why i don't want to be on that treadmill because like oh my god the you know the mental jumping jacks that you have to do in those situations but that has to be something that you consider as well big time and i think my feel for that has gotten better over time where in the course of the last like i don't know like in the last like chunk of time i feel like i've had a really good feel for why someone's telling me and honestly Sometimes just some, someone tells you something because it's the thrill. They know it's going to get out. They're like, I don't really care if Ben gets this or someone else. But they kind of want the thrill of telling someone. like, Because there is a certain thrill if you know something before the general public. And agents, GMs, you know, players, whatever the case, people within the industry are not immune to that. They like that thrill too. So that's like one aspect of it. And sometimes I would like to think, and maybe my read is wrong on this, but I would like to think that sometimes it's just someone has something they know it would help me to some small extent to to have that piece of news and they just give it to me. And I think it's as simple as that sometimes. But I will say there was one time, even this off season, where I thought I had something and I checked. This was one of those times where I texted a GM. And I checked. I'm like, I thought, I think I have something here. And I was like, no, not even. And I'm glad I checked, obviously. But in that case, I'm still like, I'm like, why did someone tell me that? Um, so there is an aspect with people you don't trust as much, with people you don't know as well. Maybe you met them this year as opposed to 10 years ago. Well, at that point, I tell myself I have to be really, really careful because it's just not worth it. So I'd rather have that awkward text than you know tweet something that's wrong. The other thing we wanted to get into here in the second half is rule changes, which uh, is a pretty big topic across MLB this week because they're rolling out all kinds of demonstrations at spring training sites of, of what baseball is going to look like this year. And I, you know, hardcore fans are very aware of this stuff. I feel like more casual baseball watchers who kind of like reactivate uh, around this time of year and put the game away for the winter months maybe don't realize just how different baseball is going to be and how different it's going to look and feel and be played in 2023 i think this is these are some of the more dramatic changes we've seen made to the game in quite some time and we can start with the most dramatic one and that's the pitch clock uh, so essentially, there is going to be a timer between pitches now, not unlike a shot clock in NBA or a play clock in NFL. Like you are going to have a certain amount of time in which you have to deliver a pitch. And this is obviously intended to speed the game up. Game times have been uh, lengthening for years and years now. And MLB is going to try to curtail that. Uh, the way that that is going to play out is that as soon as the pitcher receives the throwback from the catcher after a pitch. So as soon as he has the ball in his glove on the mound, he's going to have 15 seconds to deliver his pitch to begin his windup with bases empty. He's going to have 20 seconds with runners on base. And uh, the that clock is going to be adjudicated by an individual in the press box who is going to be timing it. The clock's going to start the moment the pitcher receives the ball. It will stop the moment he goes into his pitching motion. So he can still have as long of a wind-up as he wants. But as soon as he like picks up his uh, his foot and begins the delivery, the clock will stop. 
and there are rules for batters as well. The batter must be in the box and, quote, alert to the pitcher with at least eight seconds remaining on the clock. So uh, alert to the pitcher means like your feet are set and you're looking at the pitcher. You don't necessarily have to be like locked and loaded and ready to swing, but you have to be looking at the pitcher and prepared for a pitch to be delivered with at least eight seconds remaining on the clock uh ben i just talked for a while what are your thoughts <laughs> generally on, uh, on the pitch clock which surely someone somewhere can explain uh a lot more simply than i just did you know honestly i think it's going to be amazing i think it's going to be great i think it's going to be subtle i don't expect that a casual baseball fan is necessarily even going to notice um i think it could be that subtle of course there'll be boards up fans will know where the clock stands at any given point in time but i really think that it will compress the game without removing anything meaningful and that's great i mean it almost reminds me i don't know if you ever do this but like sometimes i'll watch a game like a condensed game essentially and just fast forward through parts like if i missed it Sam catching up on on a on a Jays game. I'll sometimes do that, or even you know, with an NFL game, you go through and just like skip all the dead time, and it's it's actually like quite an enjoyable experience. No ads, you're just seeing the action, you're taking in all this information, and this is of course a, a partial step in that direction. There will still be pauses, it'll still be baseball with some flow to it, but I really think it's going to be great. I'm super super excited to see it. And I think there's like no downside. Of course, there's an adjustment period, but I think, you know, within two, three months, we're going to be saying, how did we ever go through seasons without this pitch clock? Yeah, it's going to become normal very quickly. And people are going to be, uh, I think, shocked at just how yeah, common, like that the baseball has ever played without one you even you just look at the game times in the minor leagues where they have been sort of guinea pigging this for a while in 2021 minor league game times were over three hours in 2022 with the pitch clock they were two hours and 38 minutes they shaved 26 minutes off of game times in the minor leagues i mean 26 minutes a night and i think the thing that people are going to point to with the pitch clock as a possible downside is like well is this going to increase injuries like is this going to be harmful to player welfare i would actually look at it from like the opposite perspective i think this is going to be great for player welfare and great for the quality of baseball because every night players are spending 30 fewer minutes on their feet outfielders standing in the outfield the infielders getting down into their couches ready for for balls to be hit to them i mean that isn't gonna like that's gonna make a difference and compound over time like think about those 25 30 minutes fewer a night over a 162 game season think about it over a five season a 10 season career like it compounds and is a massive difference i think players are going to be healthier we actually saw in the minor leagues and look like some of this injury data like you can question it certainly because like injuries like it's not a direct correlation to the pitch clock but in 2022 there were 26 percent fewer pitcher injuries in the minor leagues than there were in 2021 (laughs) and there were eight percent fewer position player injuries than there were in 2021 that could be due to other factors i admit that but the pitch clock is one of the things that existed in 22 and didn't exist in 21 so i actually think this is going to be great for player welfare and the quality of baseball we see every night Right, because it goes beyond pitchers. And of course, there's some guys who are really slow to the plate. You think of Kenley Jansen, of course. Um, You know, even within the Jays, Alec Manoa, not particularly quick to the plate. Someone like Jose Barrios, much faster, especially with the bases empty. He really works quickly. Um, But go beyond the pitchers. And you have a guy like George Springer. And, you know, we heard from him this week via Shadavidi and others in, in Dunedin, Florida. Springer's saying it feels good to feel good again. So he's feeling healthy. He's going to play right field. So, okay, step one, he has fewer stops and starts because he's not covering two gaps. He's covering one gap. So that's a good thing for him as he moves forward. And then, as you're saying, you take away that 25, 30 minutes of just standing on turf, standing on grass. It's not going to benefit him. There's no training advantage to that. It purely adds fatigue adds wear and tear removing that across the game is a good thing globally 
he's getting to sleep earlier. He's resting more between games. The team is getting out of road cities 26 minutes earlier than they were. Yeah. They're arriving at the next place 26 minutes earlier. I mean, they, from a recovery standpoint and just a, a workload standpoint, I think this is going to be huge for players. Now, the the one consequence that I think is going to be rather major is the disengagements rule. So just to explain that, a disengagement for a pitcher is essentially stepping off the rubber or a pickoff attempt at a base. So this will only be with runners on base, obviously. But pitchers are going to be limited to two disengagements because what they found in the minors was a lot of pitchers were like, well, I could just reset the pitch clock if I just step off the rubber. So you had pitchers who were just continuously stepping off the rubber, throwing over to bases to reset the pitch clock. Well, you're going to be limited to doing that twice. So imagine now Kevin Kiermeyer reaches first base on a single to left against like Kenley Jansen of you know Red Sox closer in the ninth uh say you know Kenley just runs out of time with the pitch clock doesn't feel comfortable he steps off there's one disengagement he throws a pitch ball outside now he's come set again Kiermaier's getting a little froggy at first he throws over the first base Kiermaier dives back in he's safe well now Kenley Jansen's used his two disengagements and at this point if he steps off again or if he throws over to first and Kiermaier gets back to the bag, that's a balk now. And that is like Kiermaier is moving to second. And now the runner's on second in the bottom of the ninth against Kenley Jansen. That is an area where I think that you are going to see a lot of fallout from this because for so many pitchers, it is just muscle memory that if you get flustered, if you don't get the sign in time, if you're not sure, if something doesn't feel right, just step off. Take your time. I think like pitchers are going to forget about the disengagement rules and even forget about the pitch clock at times and just step off and be like, oh, geez, I just stepped off because you've been doing this that way for 10, 15, 20 years. It's just muscle memory and instinct at this point. And then I think the other thing you're going to see is all kinds of base runners like faking steals, you know, faking breaks towards second or third, taking very aggressive leads with no intention of taking off they're trying to draw pickoffs they're trying to disrupt pitcher timing so i think that for pitchers that's going to be a massive adjustment sort of in periphery to the pitch clock and pickoffs used to be something that were so boring fans boo them for a reason right no one goes to the ballpark to watch pickoffs but i actually wonder if this could make pickoffs a little more interesting I don't know. I'm not holding myself to that. Maybe they will, uh, you know, lack entertainment value even in their new form. But I do think that there's a little bit more game theory right here. And even, you know, like let's say Jansen in that situation is through his two permitted step offs. So at that point, you actually can make a case as the, the defensive team, the pitching team, you can make a case for throwing over and even burning it, knowing that if you don't pick off the runner, you're, you're going to give him second base via a balk. But at that point, the alternative is just going to the plate, not challenging him, potentially giving him a really big lead. So I think it'll be important for the Jays and for other teams early in the season to demonstrate a willingness to, even with two of those disengagements used, to throw over and to challenge that base runner and keep him close. At that point, I'd almost just violate the pitch clock. And I should say, like, as a pitcher, if you violate the pitch clock, you don't deliver, you don't start your wind up on time. It's an automatic ball. And as a batter, if you violate the pitch clock, you're not in the box looking at the pitcher with eight seconds remaining. It's an automatic strike. Somebody's going to get rung up on a violation this year at some point. But as a pitcher in that spot, I'd almost just like take the ball. It depends on the count, obviously. But in this situation where Jansen's 1 0, I'd be like, I'll just go to 2 0. If I'm not ready to yeah. execute my best pitch to it's probably George Springer leading off the plate right now, instead of giving Kiermaier second base, I'm just going to violate the clock and go to 2-0. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think, too, like another variable here is the crowd. You know, like there's a big difference in that environment, whether it's Fenway Park or Rogers Center, because if there's a reasonably big crowd at Rogers Center, Kenley Jansen, like the crowd is starting to it'll take a little while, of course, because fans will have to learn these new rules. But, you know, I think they'll catch on quickly. And at a certain point, if you realize that pressure's on, he has to come to the plate, then the crowd could potentially get on those relievers and it could add some entertainment. I also think there is huge pressure on catchers now, like even more so. We've all been kind of thinking like, well, what's the role of a catcher going to be if you bring automated balls and strikes to MLB, which we expect is going to be coming in the next few years? Like, wow, is that really going to like lessen how much defensive responsibility catchers have? I think 
pitch clocks and disengagement limits like really increases the amount of responsibility catchers have as a catcher you have to be on top of your game plan man you have to under you can't be looking at your wristband for five seconds like you can't be fiddling with the pitch calm you got to get that sign in quickly to your pitcher and you got to be on the same page as your pitcher you can't have like chris bassett on the mound who throws like six different pitches shaking off shaking off shaking off like you need to you need to be on that same page and get that sign in early that call in early so chris bassett can begin like getting ready to execute you have to be ready to receive earlier you have to keep as we've kind of mentioned a closer eye on the running game if like somebody is at first trying to draw those pickoffs and trying to get in the pitcher's head i think you need to throw more back picks to bases because when you've got runners with these more aggressive leads i think as a catcher you need to be keeping that runner close with those back picks to the bases so you now need to be on the same page danny jansen alejandro kirk as vladimir guerrero jr at first base understanding when that back pick is coming in and making sure that he is alert it gets back to that attention to detail thing um that we were talking about in the first half why john schneider is stressing that and the other nice thing about a back pick honestly and this is this is minuscule but it does give you just that much more time before the pitch clock begins because the pitch clock doesn't begin until the pitcher gets the ball on the <laughs> mound, right? So if you back yeah. pick, you do actually just <laughs> extend it a little bit and give Chris Bassett a little bit more time to recover in between pitches. Wow, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's actually true. He gets like an extra 1.5 seconds. So yeah, yeah I mean, that's um, that's pretty interesting. The nuance of it is great. I think it'll be fun to observe. We're so used to it, right? We're also players, broadcasters, coaches. Everyone's used to this one way of doing things. Um, there will be some hiccups, but honestly, I think this is like, I, I don't know that I've always been as supportive of this as I am now but as I look at this right now I'm like this is 10 out of 10 this is a this is an amazing rule change absolutely and it's funny that you mentioned uh Kenley Jansen who has like a ton of pre-pitch movement it's kind of I guess it's like trunk movement or torso movement you might call it this is something that's going to come into play as well MLB is going to be enforcing balk rules much more stringently this year and that is because it's the field timing coordinator is what the guys call it in the press box the guy who starts the pitch clock and stops it he needs to have like a clear delineation of when the delivery begins like he needs a full upper and lower body stop from the pitcher and then that foot being picked up so that uh, he or she in the press box can like stop the pitch clock and properly adjudicate this. So for pitchers like Kenley Jansen or like obviously Luis Garcia comes to mind, Kevin Gosman, another example of a guy who's got that bouncing sort of toe tap pre-pitch habit, that stuff's got to go. You got to have a clear stop uh, before you move your front leg and stop the pitch clock. So there's going to be an adjustment for Kelly Jansen. There's going to be an adjustment for Kevin Gossman just to make sure they are coming to that full and noticeable stop with their body before they deliver the pitch. Yeah, and I, I mean, in contrast to the first rule, which I think will have an immediate noticeable positive effect, I think this actually is the kind of rule that is best when it's not noticed. You don't want to be having those long conversations about what are the nuances of this rule and was it properly enforced and was the pitcher given a fair warning because that probably means that there was some disagreement and it probably was a close game and you know that's <laughs> we, we've you know Arden you and I have talked to pitchers players you know in the aftermath of a close game where there's a rule in question and it really like if they're obviously like it really gets them it's really upsetting sometimes um, and no one wants to upset players with this type of rule I understand the need for it, but I really hope we don't spend a lot of time in 2023 discussing it. Another consequence of all this, uh, this is just my prediction. I think stolen base activity is going to go through the roof. I think you're going to see a ton of stolen bases because of the the timer, which is going to make it harder to vary your times to the plate and your delivery. It's going to, you know, pitchers, it's going to be harder to kind of control the the running game um, and hold base runners on obviously the disengagement limit is is gonna have uh, an impact on that as well uh but also the bases are bigger 
now. And also there is a four and a half inch reduction in distance between first and second base and second base and third. So there's less distance to cover now for a base dealer. They can get more aggressive leads, uh, particularly in situations where they know that a pitcher's up against his disengagement limit or they know that the pitch clock is winding down and they have something on the pitcher i don't think it's going to change anything for like proven base stealers right like i still think like kevin kiermeyer and whit merrifield like those guys are going to run those guys are going to get their bags but i do think it is going to create more opportunities for guys who are like on the threshold of being active base stealers so like your matt chapman's uh your boba Shets, although he steals quite a bit even honestly like a vladimir guerrero jr yeah. i bet you steals a bunch more bases this year and you could see it in the minors from like pre pitch clock pre some of these uh regulations to after stolen base attempts went up and success rate went up and i think the same thing's going to happen in the majors this year Oh, yeah. The minor league stolen base numbers last year were wild. Um, you know, to some extent, you can do more in the minors. You There's more of a tolerance for risk. An out is less precious in the minors than it is in the majors. But I do think we'll see a, an increase in stolen bases. I really think that. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, when you think about the best plays in baseball, you know, a home run, of course, a triple, I think an error is like a low-key amazing baseball moment because it's just pure <laughs> chaos. Um, you know, but and, and I think errors are better than stolen bases. But I think stolen bases, like they're they're up there. They're probably a top 10 baseball play. And so if you get more of that, that's a really good thing. And I, I hope that the Jays are a team that steals a lot because it's just fun to watch a team really challenge and put pressure on the defense that way. Another uh, new rule we should touch on is the defensive shift limitation. So now um, you, there's no more four-man outfields. Uh, you have to have at least four infielders on infield dirt within the outer boundary of the infield. And two of them have to be on one side of second base and two of them have to be on the other side of second base. And once you start the inning, you can't flip flop. If you start the inning as a second baseman, you can't then go to shortstop. Like you have to, you are the second baseman for that inning. And that's where, that's where you're going to stay. You're going to stay on that side. I'm curious to hear how much of an impact you think this is going to have on the game. Personally, I don't think it's going to have a massive impact. I think that, most players are trying to hit the ball over the infield anyway. Like I just think that there's a lot of guys in this game who have figured out like I get I get paid for extra base hits, I get paid for doubles, trippers, triples and homers. So I'm not really too concerned about where infield defenders are positioned. Like there's probably a very slight impact for left-handed hitters or maybe a little impact for guys like with a lot of contact ability who can take advantage of some newly opened holes on the infield like is Jeff McNeil going to win the batting title by even more this year maybe yeah. but I like I don't think you're going to see an enormous increase in batting averages or anything but uh we'll we'll see it's going to be interesting to watch it play out what do you think is going to happen yeah, and there are always so many other factors in play too, you know, because the ball could change again. Um, you know, league offensive environments shift even without change in rules as dramatic as this. Like if I if all things being equal, if I had to guess, I would think the league batting average goes up by like 8 to 10 points. Does that seem reasonable? That seems like too much to me. That seems too, too much. High. Where would you put it? Well, you look at the minors in 2021, it was 247, and in 2022 it was 249. So okay. that's a two point increase, right? So yeah, yeah, I could you know look better hitters in the major leagues, right? Better able to take advantage of it, better approaches at the plate. Maybe it goes up three to five, but yeah. I don't think eight or okay. nine is realistic. So let's say it's three to five, and you know a lot of that is going to left handed hitters, um, you know guys who would have been shifted against heavily before. So maybe a Jock Peterson does a little better, maybe a Kyle Schwarber, Kyle Tucker, whatever the case. And that could impact guys in the Jays, like a Brandon Belt, potentially. I think also there are right-handed hitters who will benefit. Guys who just hit line drives will force teams to leave some holes open. Um, I think Boba Shack could be a beneficiary of this. But it's, yeah, I think I've, my opinion on this, honestly, has like switched a lot over time. Like I used to be really opposed to it. Now I'm more open to it. It's obviously happening. I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like mad about it. I think it'll be pretty good, but I don't really know what to expect. Like we've gotten so used to the shift in the course of the last, you know, probably eight or 10 years, really. It's, it's become so uh, ubiquitous, but I, I think that 
this has a chance to put more balls in play, have more base hits, and that's better than ground balls to the second baseman. I think I'm still opposed to it just because it feels kind of anti-strategy and anti-innovation. And like Ted Williams got shifted, you know, it's kind of been part of the game for a long time. But I also don't think it's going to have a dramatic impact. So I'm kind of like, whatever, fine, do it. (laughs) Because I just don't think it's going to have that big of an impact. Yeah. And I think like when people look at these rule changes, the one that they might point to is the elimination of the shift. And I think the real difference maker is the pitch clock. 100 percent for hitters too by the way everyone's going to point to pitchers but like for hitters like the met the conditioning and the the rhythm the timing all that stuff like having to be in the box with eight seconds left on the clock that's gonna be a challenge for a lot of hitters too i'm telling you guys are gonna get rung up because they're not in the box ready to go in time guys are gonna guys are gonna strike out on violations oh yeah some guys really like to take their time um you know you think about even juan soto right with his famous shuffle and he was asked in padres camp about you know, is he going to have to adjust that as he gets ready? And he might have to. But I think for, yeah, for hitters, it, it will be an adjustment that I think will come more easily than for pitchers. Um, because for some pitchers, I think it's going to be really tough. And I think for all players, the adjustment will come um, like with time. Like it's just going to take repetitions. This is why this is happening, by the way, and being strictly enforced from game one of spring training to yeah. give players enough time, like to give them like the four weeks of Grapefruit League and Cactus League to get used to this stuff and accustomed to this stuff. Because like you found in the minors last year, in like week one and week two of the season, you were seeing 1.75 to two violations per game. Right, like a, a pretty decent amount. This is this is both teams, by the way. But then by like week four of the minor league season, it was down to one violation by per game. By week six, it was down to half a violation per game. So over time, like players adjusted and got used to it because yeah, like high level athletes, right? Like nobody wants to violate these things and give away a strike, give away a ball, give away an out. This is not something that you want. So players make the adjustment and they're really good at it like these are really good athletes who can do these things so like i just think that it's going to take some time to adjust but once players have adjusted i think it's going to be relatively seamless it just might not happen until mid-may early june and sometimes you know this time of year we might look at the calendar and say wow spring training is really long like maybe maybe it's unnecessarily long and and there's a strong case to be made for that most years but maybe this is the year where it's actually kind of useful because of course in the minor leagues the spring training schedule is not nearly as robust you're not going to have the same resources from you know an umpiring and officiating standpoint so maybe this year that six weeks of spring training of four weeks of games is enough for players or most players to make that adjustment and make it relatively seamless because nobody wants to spend a couple weeks in April talking about how nobody's uh, adjusted to these new rules. 100%. Uh, the one hiccup is that at the WBC, none of these rules are going to be in play. So any oh, players no. who go, yeah, I know, players who oh, go and play no. there are going to be playing under the old rules. Why? And coming, Why not? <laughs> I have no idea. Wow. No idea. We wanted to talk about the WBC this week, but uh, we're really up against it. So maybe we'll uh, we'll save that for next week or the week after. We got a bit of time until the WBC. We got a great email about that. So we'll get into the WBC next time and, and all the other uh, storylines that are going to be coming out of Blue Jays spring training. Uh, as a reminder, you can email us at the letters at sportsnet.ca and we'll talk about uh, what you'd like us to talk about here on the podcast. Uh, but that'll be it for now. He's Ben Nicholson-Smith. I'm Arden Zwelling. Our producer is Christian Ryan. Thank you, as always, for listening. Talk to you next time on At The Letters. 